0: Dan Jones, it is very good to see you. Very good to see you too. I am excited about this because you are someone who's capable of bringing history alive, both on the page, but also on the television. And interestingly, you now have voyaged for the second time into historical fiction, which is different, some might say very different from history. And I'll be exploring that with you, as well as your skills as a journalist, your love of sport, and no doubt some of your interests and passions that we may not know so much about after the success of Essex Dogs was it obvious to you immediately that Wolves of Winter would be next was there pressure in following in the footsteps of your first historical novel and are you as pleased with it as your first novel that's basically about three or four questions tucked into one
1: i think that's well so i think that's 1a one 1b one and 1c but i'll i'll since it's your first question i'll be generous and count it as one um, it was obvious I had to do Wolves of Winter after Essex Dogs because my contracts said I did. It's uh, it's a trilogy and is envisaged as such, and it was certainly I found I thought very important to do to follow up Essex Dogs as soon as possible with the second volume. Not I mean partly in creative terms because Essex Dogs ends on a cliffhanger. Um, in historical terms, Essex Dogs deals with the Cressy Campaign of 1346 when Edward III invaded France and. There was a march and a battle, but that's only really the first seven weeks of what was a year long campaign. So Wolves of Winter, the second book, uh, follows the same campaign onto the siege of Calais of 1346 through seven, uh, which was all all sort of part of the same the same thing, although it's not often treated that way, either in fiction or, or in history. What was question 1B?
0: Well, that's quite a good answer. I was talking to you about pressure, but you can ignore that if you want. I'll
1: talk about pressure. I think there's a lot more. It's, you know, it's it's a cliche, but it's cliche for a good reason. You've got the danger of second album syndrome. I hadn't considered that in a literary sense, but when I, I started talking to people I know and trust about Wolves of Winter... Uh, they're all like, oh, yeah, everyone knows the second book's always rubbish. Uh, you're just going to phone in, aren't you? And, and like hang everything on the on the third in the trilogy. I was like, well, I beg your pardon. They're like, Every- this, everyone knows it's going to be a load. Of-. So that that felt like quite a lot of pressure. There's all, there's also baked in pressure with this, the nature of the story, because Wolves of Winter, whereas Essex Dogs, as I've just said, is about a campaign which has a sort of internal narrative imperative. They march, they fight, they march, they fight, they march, they fight. And you've got, always got the history to pull yourself along. Uh, Wolves of Winter is about a siege, and and they sit outside Calais for 11 months, and there's an effort to starve Calais out. And so that presented different challenges in terms of my sort of novelist fictional chops, which I had to learn. So I felt those, and also I I had to write it in five months. So there was massively more pressure on this book than the first one in some ways. And
0: part C is, are you as happy with it? Are you as pleased with it
1: as Essex dogs? I'm I'm a poor, I'm not the right person to judge. Everyone who's read them both, which is not many people at the moment because it doesn't come out for a couple of days from when we're speaking now, uh, says they prefer Wolves of Winter to Essex dogs. So that's quite pleasing, but I, I myself, I, I, uh, I just don't know. I'm too close to it.
0: Talk to me about the pace of your writing and whether you were conscious of writing at a different speed, given that this is a siege.
1: The pace of my actual day-to-day writing. Um, no, I mean
0: the pace on the page. The the, the pace on
1: the page. P- yes, the product. Uh, well, yes. As I said, I was like acutely aware that I was going to have to inject more pace to the story uh, than um had had seemed uh, essential with Essex Dogs because it was a story that the, the was about pace it was about forward momentum when you've got a group of people sitting waiting for another group of people to starve and give up that threatens to become quite a dull story if you don't act on it as a writer and so there are there are different ways to do that and within plot building you can send characters off on sort of little side missions which I think feels slightly artificial. And so I've, I lent slightly more into, with Wolves of Winter into forms of character development. The, the other interesting thing that I, I was able to do with Wolves of Winter about the Siege of Calais that I wasn't able to do or chose not to do with, with Essex Dogs about the, the Cressy March was to s- uh, separate the characters. So we had effectively two arenas, um, those who are outside Calais in this in a siege town built on the marshland around the city uh, and those inside the city. And so to be able to flick-flack between two different arenas is also helpful in terms of building pace uh, into a story.
0: Did you see the opening scene in which soldiers tried to identify a corpse as somehow a metaphor for the novel as a whole? Because there's a lot of drama Built around something that might not usually involve that level of intensity.
1: Well, yes, I, in in a couple of ways, I suppose that's true. Uh, the first is that, given that this book follows continuous from book one, that there's a sense within the book of the characters that we've met in book one, having to deal with the things they've, ex- in book two, they're dealing with things they've experienced in book one. And so they are sort of picking over the wreckage of what's just happened to them. And the idea of them sort of wandering half dazed around a, a, a sort of uh, a misty battlefield, uh, turning corpses over and trying to see who's alive and who's dead and what condition they themselves are, felt like a sort of the right tonal opening for the main part of the story. Yeah, I think that's that's probably, yeah, that did feel like a metaphor. And I, But in, in another way, it's just an inevitable part of, of the linking together of the two stories. And I, I found Wolves of Winter incredibly interesting to write from a historical perspective, because so few people know anything about um, this part of the Cressy campaign. I, I, you know, if you have a passing familiar, familiarity with medieval history, you, you're Probably be dimly aware of the Cressy campaign because it's where the Black Prince won his spurs and Edward III fell over and got bloodied his nose on the beaches and uh, and and you know and, and so on. and the archers were heroic, but so few people know that there was another eleven months to this campaign where this a, a town bigger than London was built on the mar on the marshland outside Calais and there were pirates and there were um, you know guns and there were all sorts of, of weird and wonderful bits of this war. So I felt like the kind of exposing of the, the aftermath of the Cressy campaign, uh, that was an important thing to set up early on in the book as well, that this was what this book is going to show you.
0: Bigger than London was at the time, you mean, not now.
1: Oh, sorry, uh, bigger than um, the siege town outside on the marshes outside Calais was bigger than any English town at the time, except London at the time. It was about, third at its peak, about 30,000 men camped outside Calais.
0: The guest before you on this 20 questions with podcast, fittingly enough, is Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption, who's I think now completed five volumes of The Hundred Years War, as well as being a very distinguished lawyer. Tell us in your words, and I asked him this question as well, what you feel we can learn from that period of history. It's not exactly 100 years, is it? It's 1337, you might say to 1453. And this novel is set very early in that in that stretch of time. But what do you think we can learn? I mean, there's, there are obviously many things, but what are the big takeaways?
1: Well, I'm flattered that having asked Jonathan, you now want to ask me, I stayed at Jonathan's chateau in the in the Dordogne a few weeks ago and had a conversation about the Hundred Years' World with him that ranged for many hours. Um, and I, I still don't think we got to the bottom of it. I mean, it's taken him 43 years and 5,000 pages to sort of get somewhere near there. Um, what can we... <sighs> It, it's just so difficult to say. I mean, this is this is a, a series of interlinked wars fought for a whole blend of competing reasons in which people often give different reasons for the fighting than are the real reasons. And over the course of those 116 years that it lasts, there's, of course, naturally an entire generational shift in the people who are doing the fighting. There's a, a sort of a, a minor technological revolution in warfare. Uh, and by the time it ends, I think everybody have, has sort of broadly forgotten why it started in the first place. I think there's a lot of, you could easily come out, and I'm sure Jonathan didn't do this, but you could easily come out with a whole lot of humbug about the pity of war and the futility of war. Equally, you could you could point to the Hundred Years' War as having been an interesting pivot point in the development of England and France in particular, along different historical and political traditions and different constitutional traditions, and all of those things would have an element of truth in them. I mean, I I haven't really gone looking at the Hundred Years' War in search of grand philosophical points. I've used it as a backdrop to write a novel about men and how they interact with one another under the conditions of of great pressure. So these sort of uh, grand, stumption-esque questions about the Hundred Years' War are probably... Uh, mo- most fruitfully poised or posed to Jonathan himself. But then you've done that, and I'm sure he gave a much more interesting answer than this one. I think he was interested in the development of the state during that period. Yes, he's very interested in the development of the state and particularly of sort of attitudes towards taxation in, in England and France and the, the relative power of the monarchy vis-a-vis parliamentary assemblies. But those, And I find those things very interesting as well, and I'm, I'm always fascinated to hear um Jonathan talk about them they're not my concerns in the novel I think it would be a dull novel indeed um, that took those as its central concerns.
0: Why did you decide to start where you started with Essex Dogs? Because
1: I had an idea and I had and I saw the scene um, and I'd I'd had an idea in 2017 when I was working on a, a drama set in the 14th century I was flying back and forth from London to Prague a lot to advise them on the set, and I, one of the, the those sort of short flights, I was dozing and and started to see in my mind's eye a group of ordinary soldiers in the 14th century, on a beach for some reason. And later, about 18 months later, on the 1st of January 2019, uh, I was I had a, rented a house in Normandy for New Year, and I'd taken a bunch of friends out there, and we were walking on Omaha Beach on on New Year's Day. And we were talking about D Day, as you obviously would on Omaha Beach, D Day 1944, 6th of June, and then about the landscape and the topography and why here. And it occurred to me uh, that actually, this D Day in 1944 was n- not the first time these beaches had been used for a large amph- amphibious invasion of France from England, that actually, the 12th of July. Thirteen forty six, when Edward III landed fifteen thousand troops on those beaches, w- was a not totally dissimilar case. It was San a little way from Utah Beach, rather than Omaha Beach, but the the broad point stands, I think. So I started to wonder whether it would be an interesting kind of thought experiment, literary experiment, to write uh, a version of Wednesday the twelfth, thirteen forty six, on near Utah Beach, with the same kind of attack and and literary. St- sensibility, maybe that's the right word, that you'd get from a World War II novel or a, or a Second World War or even a Vietnam uh, type American war film. And and I felt like it would be interesting to, to try to do a really American hard-boiled, quite tough, not hey nonny no romantic Victorian version of the Middle Ages I thought that, that you could try it out here so that we'd have basically D-Day only without barbed wire and machine guns and Messerschmitts. There would be trebuchets and crossbows and little tiny landing craft. And so that was, that was, that's the first scene of Essex Dogs. And and it was born out of that. And all of this coincided with people asking me repeatedly whether and when I would uh, move from doing just non-fiction into doing non-fiction and fiction and so they this all sort of coalesced around the same time.
0: As a historian do you does history sort of just fit together for you in the way that it doesn't for me so you know where things piece together basically I mean I would have to I, I have had to look up the hundred years war I'd have to look up when the I'm not sure I even know how to pronounce the Plantagenets. Well you've done a good job with Plantagenets
1: and I suspect that you've got a better sense of the chronology of the, you know, the ancient world being a classicist than I do being a medievalist. But the, I mean, you, yeah, I mean, you've got a basic idea of chronology. There are certain centuries that are a little bit fuzzy to say the least, but uh, I mean, I've been doing this stuff for 20 years and certainly within the realm of British history, I kind of know most of the time where we are on the timeline and so I suppose the, the great dream of the Cameron Gove era of redrafting the, the school curriculum so that children would be able to tell you what came first, the Norman Conquest or the atomic bomb, I've come to that point myself, and it's only taken me 42 years. But I mean, I, I, I don't, it's not a party trick I would pull out, I just sort of have a dim awareness.
0: <laughs> Do you start to see patterns? Do you start to see foreshadowings? Do you start to see the sorts of links between, say, the Siege of Calais and the D-Day landings? Do you look at geography differently? Does history become a sort of a, a kind of almost a living puzzle that you have a that you feel you have a sort of facility with?
1: Um, I mean, I sort of I I do have a slight tendency to go on about it if um, <laughs> if you give me half a chance, um, and I think that there's a certain Uh, I mean, tendency among historians to see a thing that's happening today and go, oh, yeah, that's slightly like that other thing that happened ages ago. I don't go looking for patterns in history because I think that you end up sort of in the realm of, you know, demented uh, YouTube channel conspiracy theory uh, ranting person if you go too far down that route. And one of the, the the takeaways from studying a lot of history is that it's always going to surprise you and doesn't. Necessarily follow geometric patterns. Uh, I've, I don't really know how to answer the question. I, I've enjoyed studying and reading history for a long time, and I think it's it helps you make sense of the world, and uh, also not to get too caught up in the self-importance of being alive right now. You know that that you do, you do learn that human beings psychologically place an enormous amount of weight on stuff that's happening right now because they're alive right now and the more history you read the more you realize that uh, all things are transitory but i mean i don't i don't want to sound too much like a guru um, just rather like, than a writer
0: i just like the idea of not being rudderless as a as a human being or as a mind as you say i studied classics and have a reasonably good grasp of 20th century history, although, of course, it's enormous, as is world history and the entirety of history, obviously. But I like the idea of just being able to have a bit of a... Not a roadmap of how we got there, but a sense of how things very loosely fit together. And of course, you're an expert in the Middle Ages. I just—I I suppose I'm just, I just—I want to be envious of you having a having a sort of greater
1: sense of where we come from than perhaps I do. Oh, well, you mustn't be envious of me, Matt, at all. Um, no, I, I, you know, we—we we all history is what is our subject matter. The the entire corpus of all human deed and achievement. Uh, it's an unmasterable subject. Uh, And that can be daunting or that can be incredibly attractive, that you're never going to run out of material. Is it of some comfort to know stuff? Yeah, maybe. But equally, um, I feel very aware that I don't know anything about advanced mathematics or engineering or um, I know far less uh, than you about music, I imagine. So... I don't know know. know what the answer to this question is. Talk to me about
0: research, because not very long ago, I I took on the project of writing a chapter for Ian Dale's book on kings and queens.
1: Yes, remind me which king you did. I saw your name in there and I can't remember.
0: I did Alfweird, I think. Now, Alfweird is a contested king. And there was, it seemed to me, almost nothing written about him. And I rather diligently visited, I think possibly for the first time in my life, the British Library, rather than rely on online. And it was a kind of an extraordinary experience for me, because here was someone about whom very, very, very little was known. And yet, you could spend a considerable amount of time working out that there was very little written about him. If I had been charged with writing about Henry VIII, how on earth does one go about that? And how do you go about writing, say, about the Hundred Years' War? Well, where do you start? Where do you end? And given that we don't have a, a remotely full grasp of our own period in history, we we don't even perhaps fully know ourselves as human beings, how, how as a historian, do you, do you start to try to get a grasp on the past such that you can then write a book to help us understand it better? Well, let's let's
1: drill down into some cases in point. You chose uh, a, a king who may or may not have been, or, or, or agreed to write about a king, Brian Dale's book, who may or may not have existed, and about which nothing is known. I that's think a, he existed.
0: A... I just don't think we know that whether he was actually king. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that seems quite germane to the topic at hand. Anyway. Um... Uh, that's a difficult task for anybody. And I commend you on visiting the British Library, which uh, can't have been a pleasant experience now. There are just sort of a million desks all in what used to be nice, airy um, atria. But anyway, that's uh, a hobby horse we needn't go into. And you mentioned Henry VIII. How on earth does one go about writing a chapter about Henry VIII? Well, the chapter in the book that you're talking about, Ian Dale's Kings and Queens, the, the chapter on Henry VIII is written by David Starkey. And David has spent 50 years studying Henry VIII. And his seven and a half thousand word essay on Henry VIII in Ian Dale's book is probably the first original thing I've read about Henry VIII uh, for m- most of my working lifetime. It's an absolutely extraordinary essay, uh, which offers a new way of understanding Henry VIII based on the two competing schools of academic thought that were around at the time of his education. And it, followed, it charts a path through Henry's life based on his Uh, the tension between those two um, modes of thinking that were in his mind. And that's only somebody like David who's been immersed in the 16th century for as long as he has and is, is extraordinarily clever and thoughtful about that particular topic could have written that. I certainly couldn't. Uh, how do you go about the Hundred Years' War? Well, I, I've written two novels that are set in, in 13 months of the Hundred Years' War. Again, if you take how do you go about thinking about the Hundred Years' War? Well, Sumption, who you've mentioned already, is a good case in point. It's taken him 43 years and 5,000 pages to do it. And that's, you know, the quote unquote cleverest man in Britain. So the only way really to master a subject, particularly one as as massive as the Hundred Years' War, or the, the life and kingship of Henry VIII, is to spend a very, very, very long time doing it and uh, and to devote a lot of your life to the subject. I think that, you know, with regards to the two novels I've written so far, Essex Dogs and Wolves of Winter, they take a tiny slice of The Hundred Years' War and they are... In a sense, about the Hundred Years' War, but really, the, the the Hundred Years' War is the big story that happens in the background, and the small story that happens in the foreground is uh, is the story of of some men trying to survive and the relationships between those uh, individuals. And so that's that's a more contained task, I think, than trying to understand a, a vast, you know, century or an entire political life.
0: I'm coming back to Wolves of Winter in just a second, but when you do your research as a historian, are you primarily focused on primary sources or secondary sources? Do you find one or other more valuable? And how do you then sift, if you are writing a a, a sort of weighty history, how do you sift your sources? How do you decide what's important, what's not important? And when you have competing ideas of of a period or a figure in history, how do you choose between the two?
1: Well, the particular books that I write, history books, are narrative history books. So they're telling a story and they're telling it for an audience that I would say is a non-specialist, a sort of general, intelligent general audience. And that could be anyone from a clever nine-year-old to a 90-year-old or, or older who's been reading history all their life. But they're That's designed a, a, to... a very good sales pitch there, just to make thank sure... You, thank you. Always <laughs> Make sure you out. get 81 years of readers in there. But 81 plus, actually, um, the, you need to read as much as you possibly can of, of, of both. But in terms of, you know, I, I have to work backwards from what I'm trying to create. And what I'm trying to create is usually a, a book of between 100,000 and 250,000 words, which will tell a particular story um, from start to finish. I don't, in my books, in running text, quote other historians because i feel that's tiresome for readers i i relegate don't relegate i move that to endnotes and footnotes and the scholarly apparatus so that readers are able to look up uh, all of the secondary sources primary sources whatever that, that they need to within the book itself but i'm always focused on narrative on the 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 narrative drive primary sources i love because i think that by selective and judicious quotation from them. You can evoke uh, a sense of period. And I like to have the, the voices of a period alive in a book that I'm writing. And um, when there are two competing versions of the truth, within the framework of a narrative history, I try to convey those between competing voices of primary sources. So such and such will say something and such and such will say something that will disagree. And then I might put a an indication of my own in the narrative about what I think, uh, or invite the reader to make up their own mind. Um, but paramount for me in writing history books is readability and the sense that this is moving at pace and follows kind of uh, deeply embedded dramatic slash cinematic story structure so that a reader will be um, swept along by a historical story with the same urgency that they would be swept along by a great movie or a a compelling popular novel.
0: And how do you strike the balance between self-confidence, readability, trustability, that people feel safe in your hands, you have got pace and thrust and all that stuff, at the same time as having a certain humility that the Dan Jones take on any
1: particular period cannot be definitive? I credit my readers with intelligence and I also bless them for their trust in me. And what I mean by that is I think anybody who reads a book by me will be aware that this is my telling of a story. And there's a high degree of of trust placed in the author by the reader that I'm not going to lie to them or be sloppy about my work so that I give them incorrect or or deliberately false or just lazy, unthought-through information. You know, they're coming to me because they want to hear me tell this story, just as if you buy an Assumption book, you want to see Assumption tell the story, or if you buy a, anybody else's history book, you know, a, um, a Mary Beard book, you want to hear Mary Beard tell you tell you the story. So I think once you assume that the responsibility that a reader places upon you by giving you their trust then you, if you're a diligent person, you will write to a standard that you believe that trust merits. And that's a high, high standard for me. So I do my homework, I do my work. And, uh, but I'm also aware that in the delivery of the information that I believe my readers come expecting a degree of um, literary polish and craft and narrative skill, which has to be delivered with the confidence of an orator. So the methodology, the method, the research, the, the diligence, the hard work, the long hours, the graft, that's the, that's the humility part of your question, I think. And the, um, the self-confidence part of the question is the right good sentences. And
0: is there a, an overlap here or a read across between history and sport, two of your great loves? you think of some of the most charismatic, some of the most talented sportsmen and women that we can imagine, you'll quite often, if not almost always, find that they are amongst the hardest workers in their team, the hardest trainers, the most diligent trainers. And so the glamour that we see when you're presenting a history show or we're watching Ben Stokes hammer the Australians, it's underpinned by really, really hard work.
1: Yeah, that's a good analogy, uh, but I, and I think that's a good analogy that could be applied to almost any field of human activity. You know, talent, important, hard work, much more important, and n- not just important, but absolutely essential and non-negotiable. For me, the there's another relationship between history and sport as well, and that is that for 10 years, I wrote a, col- a newspaper column about sport while I was writing history books. I still do write a column once a month about sport. And I found it an immensely helpful, as well as being a joy and a privilege in itself, I found it an immensely helpful training ground for writing history. Because uh, I'm now going to butcher the quote, someone described uh, sport as a weighted random number generator overlaid with narrative. You know, you, you just get a whole bunch of sort of numbers and people doing something, often quite absurd and uh, and and um, confected and then the business of being a sports writer is crafting a sort of a a never-ending story that makes sense of this most sort of you know this weighted random number generator and if you can do that for 10 years you become I think driven less to distraction by writing history because The idea that there is a grand cosmic scheme to human events belongs more to the sphere of religion and religious exegesis than to historical writing. Uh, And yet we go to historians looking for narratives to to make sense of uh, and to divine stories in in the, the weighted randomness of human experience. And so to be able to write about sport is quite a good training to be able to write about history. I found, personally. But it's quite an unusual... I'm not recommending this as like a, as a sort of career path for budding historians. I think I've been quite an unusual case. But I can well imagine that
0: when you're immersed in a, a longer-term project, writing a, a history book or maybe researching a TV series, that having the pace and the adrenaline of writing a column once a week, as you did, about sport, fantastic, because it sort of keeps you... Feeling alive,
1: less to do with sort of vitality, really, than to do with. For me personally, it was, more about the two things. Firstly, the training of being able to write 800 words to order in an hour, Uh, because I used to be uh, on call every morning when I was writing daily, which was not for the whole ten years, but for for the first two or three, I was I was on every day, Monday to Friday, and the paper was off stone at 11:25. Uh, So. Uh, up until about five past ten, I was on call, and the phone could ring at five past ten, and it was eight or nine hundred words by uh, eleven fifteen latest. But and and they have to go straight to press. There's no so don't libel anybody. Don't you know the subs will have a look, but it's got to be good to go when it. And so that training of being able to write fast and coherently in eight hundred to nine hundred word blocks is very good for just the the basic business of productivity i can write i can type very fast i could think very fast in terms of like struct you know writing structure and it just becomes instinctive it becomes like being able to do a rubik's cube with your eyes closed you just know what the sh- the shapes are that you're looking for that's the evening standard that's the evening standard yeah I, I, that was where i was for. well i still am once a month and the other thing about it you know while i was you know writing sport columns while I was uh, writing history books was it was just sometimes quite a nice little palate cleanser you know getting bogged down in I don't know I read a book about the crusades and if I was you know right in the thick of the second crusade which is quite a difficult one to get your head around in some ways it was nice sometimes just to take a couple of hours and write about like Ben Stokes's elbow will it be ready for the next test against Sri Lanka or whatever it might have been you know that you just every you know complete switch of of top topics and and mindsets uh and a, a nice little reset and then back to the book i think i found
0: writing for tv so i would
1: write scripts for presenters
0: in tv as a producer helped me in my kind of directness when i was writing in print so for a newspaper let's say or a magazine has there sort of been a nice symbiotic relationship between your writing for telly or work in telly and your writing both of non-fiction and also historical novels?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I think all the, all the types of writing eventually sort of fit together and, and have helped one helped each other out a bit. Certainly some of the earlier TV series I did in like 2013, 14, 15, 16, where I was doing a lot of script work on them, was, was great for instilling an enormous amount of discipline about the, about storytelling order. Because, as you know, Matt, television is uh, a medium that uh, you have to tell a story in a straightforward order unless you're Christopher Nolan and then, you, you know, your own rules apply. Uh, but it's imperative that you tell a story simply and in an order that makes sense and doesn't... Because you can lose your viewer so quickly on television and nobody wants to rewind. Um, So, yeah, I found that I learned a lot about the rigorous discipline of telling a story in the right order from doing TV documentary scripts. I've learned quite a lot in the last two years from writing podcast scripts because I've been doing a a sort of Plantagenet scripted podcast called This Is History with Sony Music. And each episode is about between 19 and 26 minutes long. And it has to fall into three sections because we have two ad breaks for non-subscriber listeners and the, the sort of the structuring of the episodes has sort of brought me back to when I was doing a lot of TV script work and, and reminded me it's been a sort of refresher course in tell a story in the right order, because, you know, the, the, the audio medium of, of a scripted podcast doesn't reward digression or haphazard storytelling. It has to have a, a, a similar flow to a TV doc.
0: I'm really curious to know how much work goes into, say, the series that you co-presented on Great British Castles. How much sort of hardcore research in libraries or wherever is required for you then to stand in front of a castle and speak authoritatively and, I guess, entertainingly about that castle? Because t- I suppose TV is is the sort of TV I've been involved in is so quick, so fast-paced, It's such quick turnover.
1: Well, with that that series, I did the most script work that I that I've ever done, and I would be immersed for quite a while ago, going on 10 years ago, but I, I I think I'm not exaggerating to say I'd probably be deep in one of those, uh, each episode script for a week beforehand and, uh, if possible, would have had a butcher's at the castle itself. And then we would have a shooting script and then we'd spend two weeks per episode at the castle, usually with lots of experts coming in and out from who you can glean uh, useful information. And then we'd have another, uh, we had a lot of time on that show. It was, it was still when there was a decent budgets kicking about for Specialist Factual in the UK on, on network TV. And so we'd have weeks in the edit as well. And I'd be rewriting, you know, the, the commentary script afterwards. So a ton of work went into those scripts. And that's why, and I think that's one of the reasons that that, that show, Secrets of Great British Castles, has been so enduring. It's had such a long life on Netflix and on other channels that pick it up uh, because we busted ass on that, on that show and the and page and went over and over and over and over the storytelling. The stories themselves, I thought were, you know, I, I would try to stand them up as diligently as any stories I would write in one of my books. Of course, when you're making television, you're delivering much less information than you are on the page. And it's, The the process, I don't know what you found, but I certainly found the process was about winnowing and winnowing and winnowing until you've got the essence of an anecdote that you're trying to tell. What's the most important thing that we convey here? Because words uh, are at such a premium when you're making documentaries that you want to tell the most gripping, interesting, important thing that you can before you whisk off to another section of the show. So... Uh, they, yeah, that, was, that show was very well researched, and um, and I think that's one of the reasons it it stands up.
0: So this leads to another question, and I ask this as one dad to another: How on earth do you juggle your life? How do you juggle your work and being a dad and loving sport and mixing so many different things? I'm
1: very lucky because uh, most of the things that I like are things that I do professionally, with the exception that you've mentioned of of raising children. Um, yeah, I'd right, say so most of the most of my pleasures are also my work, and and that's extremely fortunate. So I'm not trying to cram together. I'm not trying to carve out of time that I would spend working a uh, little moments to do the things I enjoy because my work is the thing that I enjoy. I read and I write, and sometimes I watch sports, and and that leaves that occupies all the hours that my children are in school. And my children, my older children, anyway, getting to an age where you know the the teenagers and so they they require a good deal less hands-on sort of chasing around so uh, I I also found Matt and I don't know what you think I'd love to know what you think about this I was 27 when my I think I was 27 when my oldest child was born and up until that point I was uh, I was a fantastic deceiver of myself about how much work I was actually going to do and uh, I used to I used to just sort of not work Day, you know, a Tuesday would pass and I said, oh, I'm going to work this evening. It was obviously untrue. I had no history of working in the evening and it was just it was absolute self-delusion. But when my the children were born, I found that that became impossible. And there was a far higher degree of of need and urgency to earn money. And so I just became massively more efficient and uh, far more focused on on the work. And that then became its own reward because I was, you know, I, there's a, a, a positive feedback loop that comes with with working hard, getting results and, and producing things. Um, but I wouldn't claim I'm the most productive person in the world. I've just been I've been driving a lot this week and I'm listening to uh, Walter Isaacson's biography of Elon Musk, which I expected to detest, uh, but have absolutely loved. And although it doesn't present uh, Mr. Musk as a, an enormously immediately sympathetic character... The one trait that you really can't help but or I can't help but admire in him is the manic, almost self-destructive urge to work and evident in uh, love of the work, even if it causes um, him a a great degree of stress and other people an enormous degree of stress. So there's always someone who's working harder.
0: Without delving into the topic of Elon Musk, there are two things that spring to mind from what you've just said. First, that you became a dad, you were 27, I became a dad when I was 42. So it's a decade and a half earlier. Mm. And it kind of makes me even more impressed by what you managed to fit in professionally, because I know how challenging and wonderful, of course, it is being a dad, but challenging in terms of time. And as you say, chasing around after, particularly when they start to toddle and walk and Crawl before that. The other thing I would say is just yes. When my son was born, I've been I've been editing these podcasts. It's just part of my sort of work life. The podcast, but I've been editing them sometimes at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, just because that is when I can fit them in. Do
1: you like working at that?
0: I can do it. I've always been able to do it. It's just one of those things. I'm sort of better at that time than I am early in the morning. How do you go about imagining what Love Day or one of the other characters in Wolves of Winter? are like, how do you imagine what they're thinking? I mean, you use the F word, for example, in the novel. And it made me wonder, did they have the F word in those days? And if they didn't, was that a co is, is is there a conscious choice of importing something of how we might relate to each other into what was going on hundreds of years ago? Just give us a sense of how you tried to bring life to that period of
1: history. You are like an assassin, Matt. You ask questions in clusters, pop, 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 pop. <laughs> oh, and that's 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 the target down. Um, the uh, so they come to you. I mean, so in terms of what the characters are thinking, how they act, I've been t- I've been told this by some really successful novelists and filmmakers that when a project is working, a fictional project, that the the characters will speak for themselves, and you'll come a point in the creative process where you're just tagging along and you're like just writing it down. And I didn't believe that would. I thought that was you know that was so much lukewarm horseshit honestly but I, uh, it's true it's really it does appear to be actually true and i've experienced it in both the books that i've written the novels the swearing's an interesting thing I mean, and it's not it's not just about swearing it's it's about the approach to dialogue in historical fiction it's a really difficult question and with with no perfect answers the there swearing is a sort of uh, a lens onto a a, a bigger world because Swearing to us these days in English is primarily scatological and gynecological mostly, and that's simply not true of the fourteenth century to swear in the fourteenth century is a you know more literal a description of 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 doing something. You swear an oath by God's fingers by christ's whiskers, by the you know raggedy ass of saint jeremiah I don't know I'm making things up. But if you're writing about the 14th century forum, uh, a sort of a wide market in modern English, the further you go from present-day idiomatic English, the harder you make it for the reader. But conversely, the the more you lean into modern-day idiomatic English, the, the less verisimilitude your story has. So it's, it's, it's high-wire active, like, how much do I just create dialogue that people will be able to follow? And how much do I throw in period detail that makes it feel like you're actually there in a different era? And there's no there's no good answer to it. People have tried different approaches. Um, there's a great book by James Meek called To Calais in Ordinary Time, uh, which came out a couple of years ago, set in the Black Death, uh, in which one of the characters, Meek, gives a, a vast amount of authentic 14th century vocabulary to while sticking mostly to the sentence structures of 21st century english and it takes a while to get your eye in have you ever did you ever watch the wire david simon's police very very little, of the little show. Bit. okay in, well, actually david simon did this in the wire he also did it in the one set in iraq i want to call it generation kill but i don't think it was called that anyway it doesn't matter his his thing was you just have to keep up i'm going to use loads of slang you've never heard before you're gonna to have to work it out for yourself and Meek kind of does that. There's another book that takes a similar approach but pushes it at two or three degrees further, which is called The Wake by Paul Kingsnorth. That's set in 1066. And Kingsnorth just writes in this hybrid tongue that is virtually Im- impenetrable until you've stared at it for sort of three or four hours. And then you get it and it clicks and you can read the book. Fantastic book, but it's very, very hard work. And so I think that's, that's the far out literary approach to uh, medieval dialogue the uh, another popular approach to medieval dialogue and and swearing's included within this is the sort of uh hollywood ye olde just generic uh it's the past man keep up you know which is i am my liege i warrant not the french will come by gods you know just this crap hokey ye olde language no one's ever spoken it's just lame and it's it's meant to connote a different time you have to i've tried to find Essex Dogs and Wolves of Winter, some way between those. And I ended up regarding it as a translation job. OK, these guys are talking and I'm just pretending like I'm translating it out of uh, 14th century English into modern English. And therefore keeping some of the you know, in the, in the example of swearing, keeping the blasphemy. And so there's a whole range of inventive blasphemy by by way of swearing in, in the book, but also peppering some twenty-first century cursing in there because I need it to I need to convey to a modern reader that these are these are hardcore military guys. So not a perfect solution, but I think the as long as so long as you, the writer, set your rules and follow them. I believe the reader will usually go along with you, unless your rules are bullshit.
0: Question 17, Dan. Is it enormously satisfying? I mean, there's a lot of this brutal stuff going on in this novel, but is it enormously satisfying, kind of in principle and in practice, that you set your, you you kind of understood the history as best you can, and then you've got this license? In other words, is it more fun for you, Dan Jones, writing historical fiction than it is writing history? Because there can be perhaps more of you. There's more of your
1: creativity in it. Yes, but there's more pressure too, because I always used to say, if you write a bad history book, probably just got some facts wrong or some interpretations wrong. But if you write a bad novel, you've exposed to the world the fact that you don't understand what it means to be a human. Very interesting.
0: Were you to be a bad novelist, I'd ask you- I'd Big say- if, big if. Say- I'd suggest that I'd suggest you were being harsh on yourself. But yes, I, 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 are bad novelists, do, have they failed to understand being human or are they just bad novelists? It's a very good, interesting question.
1: The art of the novel is to get to the business of what it means to be a human. If you write a bad novel, I think you have failed. Question number 18. Of the Plantagenets, who gripped you the most and why? Richard II, because he's the most interesting failure. And I think that's one of the reasons why he provides Shakespeare with the most interesting of the history plays. Richard fundamentally, if we're talking about fundamentally misunderstanding things, fundamentally misunderstands what it means to be a king. It, there are other bad kings. There's John, who knows quite well what it means to be a bad king, but doesn't care. There's uh, there's Henry VI, who I think understands what it means to be a good king, but can't do it. There's Richard II, who doesn't see it. Doesn't see it. A fascinating character. Very interesting. Absolutely fascinating. Very
0: interesting to me that you bring him up because I was sort of dreaming about Richard II last night for... That's very weird. Yeah, there are good reasons. I won't go into them right now. But Richard (laughs) II, I've studied at Cambridge. You were at Cambridge doing history. I was doing classics, as you said. And I was importing the tragedy paper from the English tripos. So I dropped one of my classics papers and and stole a paper from the English faculty, which was the tragedy papers, their big paper was at the time anyway. And it was just a license to study tragedy. So it didn't have to just be Shakespeare, although that was wonderful. You could study the Greek tragedians, you could look at Virgil and Homer as as sort of tragic works, you could look at Racine and Lorca and so forth. Anyway, of the Shakespearean plays that I read, I think the scene that gripped me most was the dethroning scene in Richard II. And it seemed to sum up for me a lot of what Shakespearean and perhaps ancient Greek tragedy was about, which is that through these great figures and their failures, their tragic flaws, we sort of see ourselves. And when the king falls, there are serious aftershocks in society. Anyway, I found that writing in Richard II, just I remember where I was sitting when I read it. And it's this we're talking about sort of 21 years ago. And I just found it incredibly powerful. Question 19 is. Is part of what fascinates you about sport the human stories involved? Take cricket, for example. It's a team sport, but in each team there are eleven individuals they've all got their own story and those stories are typically in, in a match particularly I'd say in a test match shown in thrown into sharp relief so that it becomes a very individual thing within a team initiative
1: no no I'm not very uh, I, I think I'm not very interested in that anymore I used to be but I think it's been really overcooked now to the point where the, the there are the sort of the meta uh, of what you're describing has now actually just become exposed in a lot of sports writing the number of times i log on to the bbc sports website and and ha- find sports writers writing about how does this affect the narrative so they actually foregrounded this overlaying that i was talking about earlier uh, into their the writing has become very tiresome to me and has spoiled my enjoyment of those uh, of those human stories in some ways uh, and so what uh, I'm much more interested in now, when I look at sport, in observing things that are ex- in, in the, the explicit sense that you're watching something that's incredibly, incredibly difficult and therefore impressive. So I've been this month, I've been to all the Wales. I follow the Welsh rugby team and have done since I was a small child. And and I've watched, so I've been out to France watching all the Wales games in the Rugby World Cup. I
0: we've been, so been paid to go to France to watch Wales. No, play.
1: I've been, I've paid my own money to, to go out to France and and watch Wales play the Rugby World Cup and and have taken my one of my children with me who's a big rugby fan and have just been you know partly I I love the 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 just the whole experience and ritualistic bit of going to a sports match. But partly I'm just, you know, it's just very impressive to watch people do difficult things. And so that's become the thing that I'm most interested in about sports now and have become worn out by the uh, the constant sort of wanging on about uh, about the sort of tragic, heroic aspects of the individual struggle within um, sport. That, that for me has become overdone and dull. I had a sort of
0: real crisis, mental health crisis in the in the first seven months or so of the pandemic. And I couldn't convince myself that I wasn't a risk to other people. I couldn't convince myself that I definitely didn't have COVID. And it sort mm. of turned me into a bit of a hermit. And one of the ways I got out of that was to go to live sports games again. And I sort of became almost obsessive about it. So I went to about 10, 11 Premier League games last season. I've been to endless cricket matches, which I love anyway, and a lot of rugby. But I love being a part of it. It's a very exciting thing. And as someone who, like you, is a bit of a performer in part of what I do as a job, going to a sports game almost feels a performance. You're part of the wider show, a tiny, 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 tiny part, but you're sort of part of it.
1: Have you been to the Colosseum in Rome? I think I've only seen it very briefly from outside. A friend, a good friend of mine, celebrated their sixtieth birthday just recently. And about twenty-five of us went to Rome, and we had a a tour of the Vatican. Then we had a tour of the of ancient Rome and the Colosseum. And we had a brilliant tour guide who managed to evoke for me for the first time uh, what it must have been like being among the crowd in. Somewhere like the Colosseum, or in Constantinople, the Hippodrome, or whatever, watching you know Roman sports, be they blood sports or or racing, or you know whatever it might be, and and the the sense of that participation in a big communal uh, event, yeah, I think is a, a sort of a, a lasting human instinct. We like to be part of crowds, and and I'm sorry you had such a, a dreadful time during the pandemic, and I, I I think others who also did were feeling keenly. The, the stripping away of that essential human instinct to go and and be with other with other people. But I'm sure Jonathan Sumption would have talked to you far more um, eloquently about this stuff than I can.
0: There's that brilliant cricket documentary, I can't remember what it was called, about the Australian cricket team and their rehabilitation of the sandpaper gate. Mm. And it was on Amazon. I can't remember what it's called. And I just remember being utterly gripped by it early on in the pandemic, lockdown, and seeing all these crowds. And already the idea of touching other people seems so alien. Thank goodness we've gone back to it. Final question mm. is, what, what's your sort of... You've given us a, a sense of it, and you've told us that your passions are your work, in, in and, and you've got your family, of course. But what what's the Dan Jones life like?
1: What's my life like? Well, look, I live, uh, I live in a, a small town... Uh, on the outskirts of London, and I live a quite a small town life, which I love. So I like drinking in a small town pub, which has not changed since the nineteen seventies, with like you know builders and bookies, and uh, I won't insult. I don't mean it's an in insult, but ne'er do wells. I um, I like the garden that I've worked on for seven years since we took over the house. So I like I like long walks with my dog. I like cooking and I adore uh, travelling, travel 12, 15, sometimes 20 times a year, um, long and short. I'm learning Greek because I like to spend every July in Greece and and I work and I write and I hang out with my kids. And it's just uh, it's the life that I'm very happy with.
0: Dan Jones, thank you very much for answering my 20 questions.
1: Yeah, man. Thank you. It was fun. I'd suggest that I'd suggest you were being harsh on yourself. but yes, i, I, I...